Welcome to Weekly Wisdom, the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This week's episode is a sermon by Reverend Marvin Lindsay on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Our scripture read this morning is yet another parable by Jesus, and it's worth mentioning that uh, parables are short stories that communicate a spiritual truth, and they often do so with a certain surprise or a certain plot twist. Now, in this story, there is not only a surprise, but there's also a trap for the hearers. <laughs> so let's see if we can understand a little bit better the surprise and see if we get trapped, whether we can get out or not. First, the surprise. And I have to say that if you're a lifelong Christian or if you're an avid Bible reader, you are probably not too surprised by the surprise in this parable. The surprise is that the Pharisee does not go home justified, but the tax collector does go home justified. That is, he goes home from the temple forgiven, pardoned, in alignment with the ways and the will of God. You know that it often in his earthly ministry, Jesus tangled with the Pharisees and often hung out with the uh, tax collectors. So you're not all that surprised. But the hearers of this parable at the beginning would have been extremely surprised because they knew real life Pharisees and they knew real life tax collectors. And so let's get to know these two uh, characters once again so that maybe we can appreciate the depth of astonishment. That Jesus' hearers would have heard. We'll start with the Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were pious Jewish laymen. They believed that the laws of Moses shouldn't apply just to the priests who ministered in the temple in Jerusalem, but they should apply to everybody in all walks of life. Pharisees and modern day Christians share a few things in common. Both Pharisees of old and Christians of today believe in the resurrection and believe in a final judgment and believe in eternal life. And Pharisees also regarded the writings of the prophets and the Psalms as holy and inspired scripture. Not all Jewish groups in the first century did. And that's another thing that we share in common with the Pharisees. Uh, You could say that because of their expansive understanding of where God speaks and because of their interest in making the law of Moses available and applicable to all people, that the Pharisees were kind of the the open minded, progressive anti elites in first century Judaism. The Pharisee in particular in this parable is a good egg. He's a good egg. Listen, listen again to his virtues. He's not a robber. He's not a rogue. He's not an adulterer. He fasts twice a week and he ties on his income. This is a guy that you can trust with other people's money. This is a guy whose spouse can trust him when he goes on a long business trip. This is a guy you can trust not to throw a garbage can through the storefront window when the Phillies clinch tonight. Okay? And this is the guy the nominating committee is hunting high and low for to put on the session because he leads a generous and disciplined spiritual life. This is your um, 
This is your dream CFO. This is your dream neighbor. This is your dream son-in-law. Okay? And this dream dude does not go home justified. How about the tax collector? Okay, in my congregation in North Carolina, there was a guy who worked for the North Carolina Department of Revenue. And he absolutely hated stories like this because he hated being made out to be a bad guy. But you have to understand that tax collectors in the first century are not like bureaucrats who are sitting in some nondescript office building processing 1040s. In the Roman Empire, the emperor and his officials would auction off the right to collect collect taxes to the highest bidder. And the highest bidder would, receiving these contracts to collect taxes, go into towns and villages and use strong-arm tactics to wring out tax revenue from the villagers and then some. So they would remit what was owed to the Romans on to the empire, and then they would keep the rest for themselves. They were kind of like mafia enforcers, collecting protection money throughout the empire. And when you add to the fact that the Israelite people, the Jewish people in the first century, didn't want to be a part of the empire, that made them doubly odious. Jewish tax collectors were collaborating with the enemy. They were taking money from God's chosen people, and they were giving it to an oppressive and idolatrous and pagan foreign power. So combine like all of the attractiveness of uh, a mafia goon with a John Walker Lind or the Rosenbergs or Benedict Arnold himself, and that is a first century tax collector. And the tax collector goes home justified in the eyes of God. That's a big surprise. So, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be forgiven and pardoned and in alignment with God's will for humanity? Well, it must have something to do with things other than moral goodness. Or moral righteousness. And when you hunt around in and around the parable, you can find some clues that might point you in a different direction. Luke says that Jesus told this parable to people who regarded others with contempt. And indeed, the the Pharisee does seem to be praying to God with one eye open. You know, one eye on the tax collector nearby and uh, an accusing finger pointed at him. Whereas the tax collector... His eyes are only on himself and his own sin. He doesn't even look up to heaven when he's praying. And so the conclusion seems to be inescapable. If you want to be justified, don't judge people. Don't look down on people. All right. So we make this a priority in our lives. We don't think ill of people who fail to maintain certain high moral standards. We strive to keep our righteousness from curdling into self-righteousness. And after a while, we get pretty good at overlooking other people's moral failings and weaknesses. Would that everyone would be so good at overlooking other people's moral failures and weaknesses. Thank God we're not like those fundamentalist Bible-thumping Christians who are out there judging and condemning everybody else, right? What about these 
uh, celebrities and athletes who go about preening themselves and thinking they're so much better than everybody else. Yeah, if we got paid to be fit and beautiful, we'd be fit and beautiful too. Who do they think they are? They're not better than everybody else. What about these, these kids that sit at the cool kids' table, right? Like, I wouldn't be caught dead at the cool kids' table. They're so snotty. They're so mean, you know? Uh, Think about these politicians and CEOs, how arrogant they are, just throwing their weight around, trampling on people. If I were in their position, I would not do that at all. That's not me. In fact, I'm I'm one of the most humble people I know. (laughs) So that's the trap. The trap has now been sprung. That's the trap. That's what's holding on to your leg. The Pharisee who judges people by a moral standard and the anti-Pharisee who judges people's judgmentalism are but two sides of the same coin. It's, it's like that, uh, you know that Spider-Man meme online? It's like two dudes dressed up like Spider-Man and you don't know who's really Spider-Man and who's the, the villain. It's you. No, it's you. It's you. No, it's you. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yes. Everyone here still stands condemned. Everyone here still stands in need of something to justify them in the eyes of God. The way out of this trap, the way toward that something, is what else Luke says about the Pharisee. Not only does he look with contempt on his neighbor, he trusts in himself and in his own righteousness. Both the Pharisee who judges people for their moral failings and the anti-Pharisee who judges people for their judgmentalism have misplaced their trust. They believe they can acquit themselves before God by their own behavior. They merely disagree about whether the way to God is by climbing a moral mountain or whether it's rappelling into a canyon of humility. In fact, there is no way to God. But there is a God who makes a way and who comes to us and who justifies us and forgives us and aligns us with God's will and God's ways for humanity. There is no righteousness in us, no humility in us, no trustworthiness or Uh, steadfastness in us except that which comes from without us it comes from outside us the sin we do is our own that's ours the goodness in us belongs to someone else and we receive it as a sheer gift it's fall it's stewardship season and the emphasis in stewardship season is often on The fact that we are not self-made men and women, our uh, food and our clothing and our shelter and the money in our bank are gifts from God. And so we are called to return those gifts out of gratitude to God. But so are our virtues. So is our holiness. So is our non-judgmentalism. So is our moral uprightness. All of these are gifts from God. Salvation. It's not a self-help project. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It all depends on God to show mercy. 
And we believe that God is merciful. Now, I know uh, what you're thinking, because <laughs> I think it too from time to time. Is there really nothing that we can do to save ourselves? Then, then why do anything at all? You know, why not combine the um, immorality of the tax collector with the smug self-righteousness of the Pharisee and just be a super sinner and trust that, you know, God's going to let us off the hook in the end anyway? That's not how it works. If you're drowning and someone throws you a lifeline and drags you into the boat, you don't jump back into the water because you know that somebody in the boat is there to pull you out again. You give that person a hug, and when the boat gets to shore, you buy them dinner. And in the same way, having been rescued from sin and from death by God's grace in Jesus Christ, we don't use that as a get-out-of-jail-free ticket. We serve Christ with joy and with gratitude. Of course there is a place in the Christian life for virtue. And of course there is a place in the Christian life for keeping the commandments. But these are effects, not the cause of our salvation. The tax collector is put right with God because he knows that he can't put himself right with God. And so he asks God to show him mercy. And so I want to invite us all this week to kind of be mindful of that. To be mindful that God and Jesus Christ has done everything for us. The tax collector's prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner, is the background of a kind of spiritual practice and particular prayer that Eastern Christians have observed for many, many centuries. It's called the Jesus Prayer, and you may be familiar with it. It's a prayer that kind of rises and falls with our own breath. So people who practice the Jesus Prayer, when they're not occupied with something else, will breathe in and say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then on the out breath, they say, have mercy on me, a sinner. So let's practice that together. Both those of you who are online and, and those of us who are here in the sanctuary. So breathe in. Lord Jesus Christ, in your mercy, and breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. So you don't have to say it out loud. You can keep it silent. Lord Jesus Christ, in your mercy, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or you can make it simpler. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Or you can make it even simpler than that. Lord, mercy. That's a way to pray. It doesn't have to be your way to pray. But if it's not your way to pray, I would invite you to experiment with, we can call it the tax collector's prayer or the sinner's prayer or the Jesus prayer this week. Experiment with it when you are condemning someone else's driving in your mind, okay? Or condemn, uh, uh, pray it when you are condemning some young person's choice of clothing this week, okay? Pray it when your mind is just rattling off about your ex or about your boss 
or about something that is wrong with the world. Lord Jesus Christ, in your mercy, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy, mercy. What if everybody took a prayer like that to heart? That we all stand in need of God's mercy and that there is a God whose mercy is ready to overflow. If we all took that to heart, the world would be awash in mercy. And that would be a wonderful place to live. In the name of the one who is and who was and who is to come. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.